0: I was head elder in a church, and you talk about the, the singing. I know the pastors in here know what I'm talking about, but the, um, the announcements that are ceaseless, that go on forever. You know, we run the second largest parochial school system in the world. People can read. You can believe that people can read. Have faith that, that we can read. Uh, we're, we're people of the Word. And so uh, what I used to insist on was, you know, the service to me is three things. It's, it's, uh, it's music, it's prayer, and the, the Word. And basically that's what we got it down to. And, you know, you have to educate the congregation. You read that bulletin. Uh, and that, but, but that those, those announcements can just absolutely blow the worship right out of a worship service. Uh, and uh, by the time everybody's pet project, some of which have something to do with the church and its mission, uh, get done, uh, you know, it's pretty well, you know, you're, uh, the preacher gets up and it's five minutes till 12. There was a there was a, a a pastor I believe his name was Don Jane who was in the uh, Napa Church many years ago. He came and it was his first Sabbath there, and that went on. And he got up the day when he got up to preach. It was uh, it was noon, and he just simply said when he got up to preach, he said, "Well, there's no time for me to preach this morning." And he said, "I uh, I'm I'm careful about those things, so we'll just have." Prayer, I'll say a prayer and we'll have a closing song go home. And that never happened to him again, I understand, at the time he was there. So, anyway, but, and then, although that none of that counts in, in the uh, African American churches and the black churches, and they're, they're just expect two o'clock and, and it's fine. You'll be having church the whole time there, and that's okay. Well, let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, we thank you on this cool morning for the fact that we can be together, that we can sing and praise you and uh, share your life together. And so we pray that these words of mine will be just kind of like loaves and fish, and you divide them, Lord, as you will, and, and feed as you, as you see the need. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I want to talk this morning about intercession. Um, and uh, it may be a little different than things you've heard on intercession before, but I'm a I'm a lawyer, and what do I know? Um, the uh, but really, what I titled the talk was G- Jesus' love is the answer, even when there is no other answer. Um, years ago, I stood in the driveway of my sister. Judy's uh, home, and she was inside in hospice care, really in the, in the last week of her life, uh, breathing her last breaths with pancreatic cancer. And she was in that, uh, what they call the chain-stoke syndrome, uh, the, when the body is so starved for oxygen and that, that terrible, terrible gasping uh, cry. It was so loud, you could hear it uh, down the driveway in the cul-de-sac outside the house in the street. My brother was standing with me and he said, how does, how does, how does one get through this? And he's a believer, um, like I am, uh, much the same experiences. And I thought about it for a moment and there was a kind of a waxing moon overhead and I've always loved the moon because it's, it says in the Psalms, the moon is a faithful witness. And I'd given that particular question a lot of thought. I think that as, as Christians... We do have to give thought to suffering that's most of the questions that you will ever be asked will will somewhere encounter or start out of suffering or or bring it into the the picture. How does God allow this to happen and so I told my brother, I think it depends on what what we believe happens after this, and after Judy dies i said if if I said, I believe, Terry, what Paul wrote in First Corinthians fifteen nineteen: If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we're going to be of all men most miserable. And if it depends exclusively on what we get here and now, uh, then we won't get through this. We watch people suffer and die. And we'll suffer and die. And the only difference is that some last longer than others, but if we have a life forever with the God who loves us, we can get through this because there's a lot more to come, and it's good. And Terry nodded, we didn't speak of it again, and, uh, you know, I was uh, was talking in the driveway without notes, so I'm not sure I sounded as clear as I do this morning, but that was the gist of it, and... uh, it's astonishing when it happens, but to confront suffering and death with the love of Christ, uh, shared in prayer and the comfort of one another, really demolishes the walls of human limitation. And, uh, and we enter into the spaciousness, spaciousness of God. But when we're children, we're told cute little stories of, of Jesus helping to find the lost baseball in the grass and bringing lost puppies home. And we graduate to prayers for convenient parking spaces for batteries to work and start the car, even if we let the cells go dry, and for help in finding our missing keys. And later on, the questions involve into, why won't God heal the baby? And why must such a good human being suffer so? And our concept of intercession um, starts going south when we're taught and teach others to pray for things, not for people, and to request gifts rather than the giver. We want to see some magic. And the sacrament of baptism has taken on a new meaning for me in, in thinking of intercession. In the 21st century, we have vaccines to check viruses and antibiotics to destroy infections. We have indoor plumbing and hot and cold running water and air conditioning and organ transplants and fertilizer, massive irrigation projects, refrigeration. Nearly instant communications, actually instant now last night, I spent three hours and where were you, Larry Moore? I spent three hours on the on the Loma Linda board call and uh, and uh, you know and, and here is Lowell Cooper in Buenos Aires, by Skype chairing the meeting you know and i 'm in, in the parking lot where we could get a signal behind a, a supermarket down the road here um, for, for all three hours. Um, but we have all of that stuff. We have the illusion of well-being, and we, we know little in many ways of, of wanting and suffering the way our, our forebears did. But here's the challenge of intercessory prayer. Do we share some, some milk and cookies and pray for the persons in a, in a bad spot and then head out to shop for groceries and pick up the dry cleaners? Or are we willing to pray like Moses did at Mount Sinai, alas, this people—this is Exodus, uh, Exodus 32:31. Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made of themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will only forgive their sin, if—but if not, blot me out of this book that you've written. One of the great prayers of intercession, rarely ever prayed. And consumers that we are, we want result without the effort. If we are to intercede in the spirit of Christ, we must be willing to relinquish our claims on life, ambitions, desires, possessions, fears, prejudices, all of those to Christ. That's what the believer does in baptism. We pass through the water symbolizing our death to self and entry into the new life, his life that he gives us, and to intercede in prayer is to sacrifice ourselves in, in identification with the suffering of Christ. We, we forget that. We worry a lot about what's in that certificate, and that's right, because, because it's important to have um, the beliefs clearly delineated and, and accepted. But it also, it's an identification with the suffering. It's a passing through the waters. And... Uh, and we need to identify with that and the suffering of the one for whom we pray in Christ's name. I've learned to prayer. You know, when people come up and say, "Would you pray for so-and-so and for their healing, and you don't really know what to pray for. I just, uh, you know, Lord, as you will and as you know, have mercy. But we sacrifice our time, our own desires and will in praying, you know, Abba, Father, if it's required, lay the suffering of the one I love on me And spare him or her from this pain. This is what Paul urged in his letters to the Philippians, uh, chapter 2, verses uh, 4 to 8. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, And being born in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Paul went on to say to the Philippians that he was glad to be poured out as a libation, as a drink offering over over the sacrifice and offering of your faith, and exhorted the Philippians to do the same thing. And when we pour out the drink, intended to quench our own thirst, to to instead extinguish a fire, Water a flower, clean a stain, or cool a raging fever. We can't hold on to it or get it back. That's the kind of thinking behind one of Jesus' most radical teaching. Be kind to ungrateful men. For your father, I mean, be, be, be merciful to those who are not merciful. For your father is kind to ungrateful men. From Luke 6. But uh, in intercessory prayer is love. It's worship, it's service, it's alignment of our will with Christ for the perspective of heaven, and it's a willingness to sacrifice ourselves to his will, trusting in his love, even though his ways are not, uh, not our ways. For what no eye has seen nor ear heard, nor the human heart conceived, what God has prepared for those who love him. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ And as we know, having the mind of Christ, having the heart of Christ means laying down our lives so that he may save those we love through us. And until we make that choice in truth as well as in theory, speculation on the mechanics of God's interventions or on his reasoning behind what we think we see and what we think we know of his will, have no more relationship to reality than our guesses how our tricks are performed in in a cabaret magic show. And so, I want to talk to you about some people in my life that have um, shown me a lot about intercession. They've shown me a lot about living out the love of Christ and in, in, in intercession for others. And there are times, you know, when we have prayed, we have worked, we have done our best to see somebody healed, to see relationships healed, to see situations, and sometimes it is, it is obvious to the human eye and, and, and mind that there is no solution here. This is absolutely not going to work out. It is hopeless. Sometimes in the case of forgiveness, the person who we would be forgiving or we would ask forgiveness from or, or whoever is gone. I think of a of a fella at Loma Linda who works in the uh, in the HR department. as one of the directors. I uh, he for years, as I would call in department, he would answer the phone. He kind of rose up in rank, and, and over time, I got to know his story. And then one day, I asked him a little bit about his background, and a, and the story came out that left me, frankly, in tears at the end of the call. He was at Southwestern uh, Adventist uh, University, That's what they call the, the school in Keene, Texas uh, now, uh, but back when it was a college. But he was there in the 1990s as a student from Rwanda. His sister was also in the States, but he had a family, uh, four siblings back with his parents, and they worked at the, uh, the Mission Hospital of Muganero. As you know, things broke up into genocide in, in Rwanda and in a civil war that was, that was ethnic between the Hutus and the Tutsis. His family was gathered there in the mission compound, and they were in the chapel of the, of the, the, in the church there, which is quite a large church, to, to uh, gather together for protection. And there's, a, there's actually a book that won the National Book Award uh, about uh, based in part on this incident, they sent a note up to the conference president on the hill and said uh, pardon us but tomorrow we and our families will be killed The conference president who has since been I think tried and convicted as a war criminal uh, sent he was of the other ethnic um, persuasion and sent uh, you know word to the, uh, the, the thugs they came down and that, ch- that church stands now empty as a memorial with bloodstains I'm told uh, up about 4 to 5 feet high clear around like a watermark like a flood had come in and that night a lot of people died in that chapel well over a thousand hacked to death including his parents and his um, his siblings and many of his relatives and they had grown up living next door to the con- to that the conference president that worker and his family and I remember Lynn Barron standing up and saying to Robert Falkenberg in a meeting and years later, she said, you know, what's happening here, she said, is, is, a, uh, is an obscenity of this church. She said, we, we should be able to expect more of the gospel than this. But that's not my point this morning. My point is that, that Jerome faced that. So I, as we went on in friendship, I asked him one day, I said, how did you deal? I said, have you forgiven for this? And he said, yes. And he didn't, he didn't hesitate. And I said, how, why did, how did you do that? He said, my sister has a hard time with me and, and the situation, you know, in grappling with terms. But he said, I finally thought, this hatred can't be my life. He said, my life is Christ. And he said, and on faith, I simply have to forgive. And he said, I did let it go. And he lives with the kind of peace that I would say would be our fruit that that's really true. I think of another woman I work with there whose family was in Asia. And they had, uh, there was another civil war, ethnic civil war. And her family was driven out of their homes and they had, had a number of businesses and a sawmill, etc. She was, she was chased out along with her family as a fairly young woman. Uh, late teens, and they were c- captured by the other side and, and suffered unspeakable horrors, and uh, and she was uh, raped multiple times. She's a, an executive there, and I, I work with her often, and, and I only know her story because she told her story one day in worship, because her daughter at Walla Walla was at a class of Walla Walla and was asked to do a project, and uh, on forgiveness, she talked to her mom And she asked her mom when she, she had really not known the full story when she got out. She said, how did you, how did you possibly, um, did did you forgive? And she said, yes. How did you possibly do that? And she said, I was not going to allow what happened there to be my life. And I really wasn't going to allow it to be your life. We were not going to live in bitterness. We were going to live in in the love of God. And so they make these choices. They, they could probably never get, in this earth, restitution about that. But they chose love over hatred, and they inspire me in, in that way. To love is hard work. To give care is hard work. And sometimes it's heartbreaking work, and often it's that. And what's our calling um, when the situation is hopeless and the outcome is devastating, and we're not spared? And those we love aren't spared what's coming. The Gospel of John tells us that on the night before his crucifixion, already knowing that he'd been betrayed, and that the time had come for his death, Jesus, having loved his own, loved them to the end. I love that phrase. He loved them to the end. And I'd like to talk with you this morning about what it means to love to the end those who are entrusted to our care. I was called to an ethics consult in the uh, consultation, the neonatal intensive care unit at Loma Linda. Now, an ethics consult is when the physicians, attending physicians and the, and the residents and the nurses and, and um, they're attending a patient, plus a bio, we have a staff of clinical ethicists, bioethicists uh, that are trained for this. One of them's there, usually an attorney's there. And in the NICU, I, I typically am always there because that, this is something I choose to do, although it's it's very hard um, and then then others gather as they will, and it can be quite a large thing. sometimes it's with the family, sometimes it's not. and so we had gathered, and there there was no family for reasons i 'll stay in a second here, and the patient was a seventh month old boy, and his mother had smoked crack the morning he was born, and uh, she had done that throughout pregnancy, and that's not uh, you know. Going to yield good results. He was born with good Apgar scores, which are the scoring that a lot of you probably know. But it's activity, pulse, grimace, and appearance, respiration, meaning that the you know the baby has good normal reactions at birth. And he had he had good Apgar scores. And uh, but he shared the mother's addiction and had to be weaned off the crack. And it quickly became known that his his lungs were underdeveloped and they had kind of holes in them like Swiss cheese. And he was transferred to our NICU just two days after birth. And his lungs repeatedly collapsed. And most of the seven months he was in our NICU, he breathed with the aid of a ventilator. His mom died of an overdose several months after his birth, and his father was unknown. And the baby started to rally. He was laughing and alert, and by the fifth month of his little life, The staff was able to give him rides around the NICU in a a wagon, but then the disastrous wildfires came in the fall, which they always do in Southern California. And even the extremely triple, quadruple filtered air of our NICU was affected by the smoke slightly. Not enough that anybody would notice, but it was more than his his ragged and leaking lungs could take. So he was vented again and, and chemically paralyzed so he wouldn't fight the ventilator tube. And then one of his lungs blew out again, and finally his primary nurse asked for the ethics consult to determine whether or not extraordinary measures would, uh, were justified to keep him alive, despite the pain and discomfort they, they caused him. So there we were, we all gathered. The ethicists, the attendings, the nurses, respiratory technicians, and, and the lawyer, me, to review the case. And as the attending neonatologist, presented the medical facts, I could see the primary nurse's tears just out of the corner of my eye, just looking across the table there. And her tears were sacred to me. Um, She was thoroughly professional in calling for that ethics consult in the best interests of her little patient, even though it might lead to ending the efforts to prolong his life. But her heart was breaking at the thought of it, and that's the kind of people you want taking care of you. And I said, I realize that this is flesh and blood we're talking about, but I have to ask two lawyer-like questions. Is there any reasonable hope of of this patient's recovery? No, we all agree there is not. That was the chief attending. And then I said, then are current measures uh, being taken more painful and uncomfortable to the patient than helpful? Said they're more uncomfortable and uh, painful. So then we have enough for the court to rule on, on uh, that we can stop extraordinary measures and I'll help you with, with the letter of application. And on the way out of the room, I asked the chief of neonatology to take me to see the baby. I, I, I never like to talk about a patient that I haven't um, personally observed. And the reason is, I am a lawyer. I am kind of a, just a bureaucratic hack. And you do have to remember this is flesh and blood. I think it's, it's, it's essential not to do this in a detached way. Um, and so there he was lying in and I, I think all babies are beautiful but anyway he was lying there in his bassinet beautiful skin dark wavy hair perfect little eyes and fingers and he was wrapped in a colorful blanket and that kind of jolted something in me because the standard um, NICU issue um, blankets and, and sheets are, are kind of a teal green and this was colorful. It wasn't a standard hospital issue. And on the shelf, I saw little colorful soft toys uh, up there, also not standard issue. And when I saw those special touches, I realized the fight that the physicians and nurses were waging for his life came from some deep, fierce and personal love for this baby. They were incapable of, going, of just going through the motions. They were men and women of prayer, and they really are, serving in a place whose mission is to continue the teaching and healing ministry of Jesus Christ. And their service was their prayerful intercession for the life of this child. And in this case, the answer to that intercession was going to be a heartbreaking no. So, I walked out to my vehicle out in the administrative parking lot and I cried all the way home. And I called my wife Patricia, who's here on the cell phone, and I I told her about my despair. But I said, you know, and this is the point, whether someone is on this earth for seven hours, seven weeks, seven years, 70 years, to be with people who love you and fight for you is a great and wondrous grace. It doesn't get better than this I told her. And even when we are when we in our human limitations have to let go, Jesus Christ does not let go of them or of us. And this I believe with all my heart even when life gets as painful as that moment. In the pediatric hematology unit of the children's hospital, a colleague of mine, another lawyer, observed a nurse uh, going about her administrative duties holding an infant. And even though she was clearly inconvenienced to holding her and charting and doing the stuff she had to do, the nurse didn't put the baby down. And my colleague asked, why don't you put the baby down in its crib while you do your paperwork? Nurse said this baby was born with an aggressive and malignant brain tumor. And the parents were told that the surgery or radiation was most likely futile and dangerous, but they wanted to try because there was no other hope. When the pediatric neurosurgeon opened the skull, the tumor was so large and intertwined with the brain to proceed, brainstem to proceed, he's, he's dying. The, patients have other, uh, the parents have other children and can't be here all the time. And the nursing staff on this unit made a pact to ensure that this baby will be held and loved for the rest of his life. He will never be put down or left alone. I hear the words of Jesus echoing through the rooms and always saying, don't look elsewhere for the kingdom of God. For see, the kingdom of God is right here in the midst of you. And even though we rarely speak of it, I know those physicians and nurses hear those same words in their hearts, and they follow them in the actions of loving care um, that is God's destiny for his children. We don't speak of it so often because we're busy. But you just, you know, it's one of the largest neonatal intensive care units in the United States. But it's, uh, I've, I've spoken for their uh, their prayer retreats, which they hold annually, and uh, and I know, know their hearts work with them frequently, and I know their hearts on this kind of thing. But that kind of care, that kind of love, is God's desire for his children, and we are the instruments of that. And this is just as true for the child who's taken home for a long and healthy life after a heart transplant, as it is for the baby boy for whom there is no miracle, and who doesn't make it through his seventh month, or the 81-year-old with emphysema and congestive heart failure who won't leave the hospital alive, or the gangbanger who comes in with a bullet in his brain from a drive-by shooting and will never see his 18th birthday. We are called to love because God first loved us. We are called to love regardless of the diagnosis of the prognosis or the condition of a person's heart and life. And having the mind of Jesus means having a mind that loves, and having Jesus in our heart means having a loving heart. John said as much. He said, if you can't do that, God's not in you. There at the end of 1 John 4 and at the start of of, uh, 1 John 5. Love like this hopes for the best results, but it doesn't require those results. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, 7, love bears all things believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. The kind of love that, that believes and endures and bears all things means a love that risks disappointment, loss, even rejection. Care that doesn't risk failure isn't love. It's a mechanical, merciless calculation. Jesus risked all of that for us. The disappointment, the loss, and rejection. Taunts in his ears, you know, if you are the son of God, you know, come down from the cross and save yourself. And he endured it all, because he knew to endure it all and go through to the end would finish off this problem once and for all. And there would be a second coming to to take us home. There's a human tendency in all of us, even those really well-trained in, in the healing arts. But it's true of everyone. To turn away in denial and detachment from, from, uh, from problems and people that we can't, we can't fix or solve, or they're deemed hopeless and terminal. And I've certainly had these feelings myself. Um, I remember a physician, had, uh, he was a fairly young man, very accomplished, he had multiple sclerosis. And multiple, multiple sclerosis in a male who he, you know, he was diagnosed in his 30s is, is a fairly quick uh, death sentence uh, in, in a male. And a uh, number of years went by. A, a, a physician at Loma Linda did something really radical. He, he, he gave him chemotherapy, a course of chemotherapy, which is like putting Drano through your veins. And uh, it, uh, it put him in remission for a period of time. But he was really suffering. One day he said to me, you know, he says, my colleagues don't look me in the eye anymore and they don't talk to me. And uh, I said, I'm sorry. I said, I know that happens. I said, uh, they would so desperately want you to be cured. And that's not going to be possible here with them, as you know. And, and they have a hard time with that themselves. They have a hard time. If We can't do anything. What do we do? Well... What I'm talking about this morning is what we do do. We, we, uh, we pray, and we love, and we hold, and we help. Even Jesus knew something like this temptation to be detached. So he faced death from the very people he came to save, who desperately needed his healing, his healing of their souls, but who despised and rejected him. He prayed, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me yet. Not my will, but yours be done. And he went through with it. Gave his life for you and me with this unconditional, never quit kind of love. Staring into the face of death, he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And the capacities of love are tested at the breaking point, And the care of people whose cruelty has been so great that they can't see anything else but that way of life and, and um, you know, uh, pour out their, their hatred and their violence on others. It's, it's, uh, it's tested at the breaking point in the care of, of sick and suffering people who just, you know, ultimately we can do nothing about. We can become frustrated and overwhelmed when we can't stop suffering and become afraid when we can't stave off death. And first there's the pain, always the pain, unrelenting strength sapping, uh, vicious pain. We're tempted to offer theological explanations knowing that we can't really explain what hurts really like hell itself. And we think of glib apologies to sufferers for a God who seems to have gone AWOL. In the end, and I speak from experience, that what, are, there is, what is there really to offer but our presence and our touch, but these can seem so inadequate. My wife Patricia here, who has, uh, has, you know, labored with health challenges over life, told me something years ago that really um, resonated with me, that nobody should ever be given a book on suffering to read while they're suffering. It's like, kind of like salt into wounds. You know, the time to, to read is to get clear and sure of your relationship with Jesus Christ at all times. I tell people at Loma Linda, Practice emotional, practice emotional stewardship. Practice um, family stewardship. You have these families at the end of life fighting out of guilt and dysfunction and everything else. And they fight and fight and fight. And really, what was necessary and is necessary in all of our families is to every day say, I love you. And if forgiveness is necessary, say, I forgive you or I ask for your forgiveness and clear the decks. People like that come to the end well. People who don't have that think well if I can just keep it we can put another tube in them and keep this heart beating longer they might come back and then we might be able to straighten out. We should have straightened out in the first place and it just eats up you know lives and resources and times and emotions and everything else but it doesn't come out well and you need to clear the decks every day. That's emotional stewardship. But in the, in, when there is the pain Seemingly impossible demands are placed on whoever's involved to fix the unfixable. And sometimes that pain is solely of the heart and solely of the mind. Disappointment turns so quickly to antagonism when the fix doesn't happen to expectations. However, unrealistic. And yet Jesus' call for us to love is is She said, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Do good, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, for your Father is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. I really don't know of a more radical statement in the whole gospel than that statement. Your Father is kind to the ungrateful. In older versions, King James, to ungrateful men. You know... It's easier, much easier to be kind to somebody who's really appreciative and thankful for it and grateful and everything else for the sacrifice he made on behalf. For somebody who is just angry, bitter, and, uh, and doesn't care, that can be very hard. But that isn't the test of our love. Our test is the Christ who lives in us and who died on that cross for people who would run a spear through his side and taunt him like they did. Jesus called it Call to show kindness and to rude and ungrateful people and to give mercy by patching together those whose poor health or injuries result from their own bad choices. Constrain our human capacities for love and goodwill. But the proof of true love is faithfulness, not success, and not whether we get a warm hug and a thank you in return. After all, we can't control how the object of our affection is going, to be re, uh, is going to respond to us. But we can choose to love regardless. And that's how Jesus loved. And that's how he calls us to love. And he faced the same tragic illnesses, conflicts, injuries that we do. And he endured the same human reactions of pain, pride, and fickleness. And yet he never flinched away or despaired. He calls us toward the misses and the broken places, not away from them and that's why i find john's observation about jesus actions the night before his crucifixion so stunning having loved his own who were in the world he loved them to the end he chose to show this by washing the callous blistered bruised stinky dirty feet of his companions including the one who he knew had betrayed him and the ones who he knew would run away who he knew would run away from him in a matter of hours and when jesus finished he said i've showed you what to do And if you can stand by and help like this, you'll be blessed. And that's John 13, 17, my my paraphrase. It's not just disciples that receive the blessing of Jesus' loving touch. A poor, disfigured, contagious leper came and knelt before Jesus and said, Lord, if you choose, you can make me clean. And Jesus eliminated the fear and the hopelessness that stood between him and the shame-diseased man By reaching out and touching him, he said, I do choose, be made clean. And I always loved that touch, that he touched him. In that society at that time, touching him was considered virtually a death sentence. And Jesus touching the leper makes me think of a teenage girl from a congregation we used to attend. She was beautiful and popular girl from well-to-do family, and she went on a short-term mission trip to a remote village in Mexico. And uh, with a youth group from the church. And there were doctors and dentists and nurses along to provide the health care, but there were more patients than expected, and the youth were pressed into service to help their the care. And the girl was given a patient to clean up before the doctor saw him. And he was in severe pain from a, of an uh, abdominal wound that was crudely bandaged. And when she removed the encrusted rag off that wound, she found a festering, foul-smelling gash deep across the stomach that was open and alive with maggots. And with gloved hands, this teenage, sheltered Southern California Adventist girl took a pair of tweezers, and she removed the maggots one by one. Another's presence began to look on with revulsion and then astonishment and then a kind of hushed reverence. And she went through her work carefully and steadily. She tenderly washed the wound before turning the torn and infected man over the professionals. And her youth pastor asked her in amazement, How did you do that? She said, I wanted to throw up. I wanted to run away. I said to myself, I can't do this. I can't do this, Jesus. But Jesus, you can. Please help me see you in this poor man, and I will do it for you. She said, that's how I did it. I did it for Jesus. And when human judgments made in pride and fears pronounce someone untouchable or hopeless, an intimate touch is the unmistakable sign that love is present. That touch is sacred. The first letter of the Apostle John tells us no one has ever seen God. But if we love each other, God lives in us. And his love is brought to full expression in us. So I read love. And I see God and the nurses that made that baby with fatally leaking lungs um, Made sure that he had colorful toys and a blanket and heard loving words and laughter until the end. I see love and hear God and the nurses that held the baby with a brain tumor until he took his last breath. I hear love and God speaking to the story of the teenager who didn't flinch away from the foul wound but cleaned and dressed it. And I hear love and see God and the forgiveness of my friends at Loma Linda who suffered such terrible losses and tragedies and devastation, but still chose for the sake of who they were in Jesus Christ and who they wanted their children and their family that were surviving to be, forgave. And on your worst day and in your most awful moments, I pray you take hope and courage in this truth, that Jesus loves you, that he came to give his life for you. And he's coming again to take us home. And having loved his own, he loves them to the end. And because he loves us like that, we don't have to be scrambling around worrying about how we're going to make it or do anything else. He is our provider. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. And we can live an assurance on that. And we can love others like this. Because of this ultimate love the greatest miracles that occur really aren't the dazzling results of successful treatment healing people love those we love them we love to read books about it but the greatest miracles are 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 when care is given to the sick to the damaged to the written off for no other reason than Jesus love bears all things believes all things hopes all things Endures all things, and that love is a love that's true to the very end. So let's let's uh, let's sing before we pray. Which was the time this morning, um, Jane, and we'll sing uh, this morning. I don't know if you have your um, prayer sheets, but we, we we're learning the songs anyway, or know them by heart. Um, I have a longing in my heart, and then. Um, Spirit of the Living God, and and uh, um, the Jesus Lord to me, and and uh, I asked Al to help us there in the back. Okay. <laughs> loving Heavenly Father immense heart of love holding all of us in your embrace fairest protector who walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death mm-hmm. thank you for life and for grace bridging between how it is in this broken sinful world and how you intend us to be for us in that everlasting day to come when every tear is wiped away and pain and sighing will be no more And Father, until then, fill our minds with the possibilities of your great love and our hearts with the courage to live it out and the care of those precious souls and bodies who have been entrusted to us to be loved with the love that you put in us. Bless each person here with renewed strength and wisdom and the joy of the presence of Jesus Christ. In his holy name I pray this. And thank you so much Lord. Amen. Amen.